Well, if you already closed your Bible from the prayer time, open it back up to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11 today, starting in verse 11. As we keep working our way through the book of Romans, we are coming toward the end of the first major section of Romans, which you may have thought, we already did that a long time ago. Uh, But Romans is really divided into two sections, chapters 1 through 11, and then chapters 12 through 16. And so there will be a noticeable change in uh, the direction that Romans goes uh, when we get to chapter 12, but, uh, but we have some deep things to consider in front of us here today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles on the ends of each pew, and it should be on page 947 in that Bible. Let's read together from Romans 11, starting in verse 11 through verse 15. So I ask, did they stumble, and they there being Israel, the Jewish people, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? One of the saddest things that can happen in this world, there's a lot of sad things because of the brokenness of sin that have come into this world, but one of the saddest things is when family members become estranged from each other. Don't speak to each other, sometimes for for years or decades without talking or seeing each other. Now, it's it's not usually, when that happens, it's not usually over just petty disagreements and personality conflicts. It's usually because there are deep, serious sins that have made it difficult to see a path of reconciliation. But one of the most moving and beautiful things that you can ever see in this life is when that reconciliation actually does come between family members. And it's so great to hear when it comes, when God would grant, through the brokenness of sin that had broken those relationships, when God grants repentance and forgiveness and love and a rebuilding of what was broken down in those things. And when that does come... It's such a joy even just to hear about from a distance. And this is the kind of future joy, this is the kind of hope that this passage calls us to, a hope for Israel, for the Jewish people, that even though so many have rejected God by refusing to embrace Jesus, the Messiah that God sent, and who is God sent in the flesh, that even though that happened, that great rejection, that there is a time of reconciliation between God and Israel that's coming, that's spoken of here in Romans chapter 11. As we come here, I want to remind you a little bit of the situation in Rome. This book of Romans is a long letter. It, it is a beautiful letter. It would have been an expensive letter to put together in Paul's time. It was very intentionally put together, but it was written to the church in Rome. And they were in a specific place, in a specific situation. And part of what had been going on in Rome as the gospel had come there after Jesus was risen from the dead and as the the gospel began to spread throughout uh, the Roman world and even throughout the world beyond that as well, 
people had come to faith in Christ in the city of Rome. And that probably began, as it did in other cities, within the synagogues where Jesus was first announced as the Messiah. And then if Rome was like other cities, then probably some within the synagogue had embraced Jesus as Christ. Many probably did not. But then there were also those Gentiles who embraced Jesus as the Messiah and as Savior. And they would have come together in one church in the city of Rome, Jews and Gentiles together. But there was a strange thing that happened in the city of Rome in those early years of the church in Rome, which is that there was an emperor named Claudius who got upset with the Jews and expelled them from the city. And so it was for about nine years, I think it was AD 41 through 50, that all Jews had been expelled from the city of Rome. Now, what would that do with a church that had begun as a church of Jews and Gentiles together worshiping Christ as the Messiah? Well, it would have turned it into a Gentile-only church for a while. And you can kind of imagine the way that they would have started thinking in a situation like that. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe God just has a plan that it's only supposed to be us. Some might have been thinking that. And then as those Jewish believers started to be able to come back into the city of Rome and were coming back and rejoining that church, then there would have been this feeling, what do we do here? As, as we have been a Gentile church and now we are a Jew and Gentile together church, how do we handle this? And there's all kinds of questions that would come up with that, and some of those you can kind of detect from the way that the book of Romans is written. One of those questions would have been, is there a different gospel for Jews than there is for Gentiles? And about the first four chapters of Romans address that very clearly, absolutely not. Gentiles are under sin and condemned for it. Jews are under sin and condemned for it. And the path to salvation for Jews and Gentiles both is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what the first four chapters of Romans are about. There's another question that we're going to come to in Romans chapter 14 when we get there, which is, are the rules different for Jews and Gentiles? Uh, those who trust in Christ. Maybe, maybe Jewish Christians are supposed to hold different kinds of holidays and, and regulations about foods and those kinds of things. Maybe that's supposed to be different for Jews than it is for Gentile Christians. And the answer there is, well, we're going to let people go by their conscience, but no, there are not different rules. We're free together in Christ. There's not different rules. And part of the question that's here in Romans 9 through 11, but especially in chapter 11, is, Are there two different peoples of God? It's the same gospel, it's the same regulations, but is God intending to keep these people separate, to deal with them differently? And the answer here in Romans 11, and this will become especially clear next week, is no, this is one same people of God that he has created together in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. But within all of that, wondering kind of, well, what's going on then? Why is it that so many, if you just look around the world then or you look around the world now, why is it that so many from Israel, from the Jewish people, rejected the Savior, the Messiah that came to save them from their sins? Why would that be? Well, there's lots of answers that have been given, starting in chapter 9. There's the answer of God's sovereign choice in election. In chapter 10, there is the answer of their own responsibility in rejecting him. But out of all of that, 
There's the question that may come up at this point, well, is God just giving up on this people? And the answer here is, by no means. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The first 10 verses of chapter 11 show that Israel's rejection of Jesus was not total. That even in that time of rejection, that there was a believing remnant chosen by grace, according to God's will, whose faith is in Jesus Christ. So he shows that the rejection was not total, but now, as we come to verse 11 through the end of chapter 11, we'll see that it's not only not total, but not final. The rejection of Jesus by Israel is not final. So let's see what's going on here. First of all, in verse 11 and 12, with God's sovereignty over Israel's stumble. He said then, so I ask, did they stumble? I'll just pause right there. Did they stumble? The answer is yes. He's saying that there was a stumbling in, as a whole, in the majority, the Jewish people failing to embrace the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. That was a stumble. But he said, did they stumble in order that they might fall? The question here is, is God's purpose in this situation in life, this situation in history, is it to do this terrible harm to Israel? Is it to reject them forever? Is it so that they would have spiritual ruin that can't be recovered from? Is it so that they would be completely kicked out and replaced by others? Well, no. That was not God's sovereign purpose, and in fact, he, he answers that. That's, that's a question that could be asked based on the verses that had come before, but he answers it by no means. Absolutely not. That same phrase that he's used a couple of different times elsewhere in Romans, the most famous of those being in Romans chapter 6, should we sin so that grace may abound? No. That's a total misunderstanding of what Christianity is. And he's saying here in the same way, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall and be rejected by God? And he says, by no means, absolutely not. It was not to make them fall, but God does have purposes in it. Isn't that amazing? God has purposes in it. He goes on and he says, here are God's sovereign purposes in what's going on in history with the majority of the Jewish people having rejected the Jewish Savior. Here's what's happening. He says, Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So two purposes that he says here are, for one, to save many Gentiles, like me. To save many Gentiles, but then also to save many Jews as well. But let's think first of all about what it says about God's purpose through Israel's stumble to save many Gentiles. He says that there is trespass, that would be the sin against God of rejecting Christ, he, he talks about their trespass. He talks uh, about their failure. But he says that this trespass and this failure brings salvation and riches to the Gentiles. Now, how would that be? 
You've got to think about that a little bit. How would that be? Well, let's think about a few things that happened here. One of those is that the Jewish leaders within Jerusalem put Jesus on trial, heard Jesus testify that he is God, and in response to Jesus testifying that he is God, declared he has committed blasphemy, he deserves to die. What further evidence do we need to hear? And then sent him to Pontius Pilate that Jesus was crucified. And that as Jesus was crucified, the intention of those Jewish leaders who had rejected Christ, the intention of their crucifixion was to prove to the world that he was not the Savior, that something like that could never possibly happen to the true Messiah. But in that trespass, do you know what God was doing? He was making Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that amazing? They thought that in their rejection that they were proving that he was not the Savior of the world. But in fact, that action of his crucifixion is our only hope for all eternity. That he died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and then on the third day proved them all wrong and rose from the dead demonstrating his power and his godhood. Another thing that happened was that there was persecution of the early church, that those who were preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus was the only way of salvation, very quickly things started happening to them like getting stoned to death, like happened with Stephen. And you remember at that point, the author of this letter that we're reading, the Apostle Paul, He was mainly known then by his Hebrew name, which was Saul, and he was there holding people's coats while Stephen was being stoned to death. And that persecution that arose after Stephen's death started to scatter the church at Jerusalem. Well, what happened in that trespass, in that failure? Well, what Acts chapter 8 tells us is that those who were scattered began preaching the gospel throughout the whole world. You see what's happening there? God has a sovereign plan in it. God had a plan even for the crucifixion and even for the persecution of the church that was coming through those who should have seen and should have known better. God had a plan to start spreading the gospel far and wide and for people to be saved throughout the known world and now throughout the entire world. It's incredible. There was also the the failure to listen to gospel preaching. So many who were were trained up in those old ways and in the false traditions of the Pharisees, when they heard gospel preaching, they simply said, no, this can't be, we won't listen to it. And do you know what that did? It didn't stop anybody from preaching the gospel. It just meant them they were going to turn and preach the gospel somewhere else. It says in Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So it was another way that God began to bring in the Gentiles, began to bring salvation to all the nations. Another thing that happened is that the gospel was pushed out of the synagogues. And if you ever have ever read through the book of Acts, you see this over and over again, multiple, multiple times. They go into a new city, they go into the synagogue, they open up the Old Testament, they say, here's what it says, Jesus did it, Jesus is the Savior. Sometimes they listen for a while, but it's usually not long before they get kicked out. They're not allowed to say that in the synagogues. You know what happens then? 
they start preaching in the streets. Because they're not going to stop preaching. It says in Acts 4.20, Peter says, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so through that, God brings about the salvation of so many people. That same kind of pattern, by the way, of getting kicked out of where the gospel ought to be preached and, and then preaching somewhere else, that same thing happened during the Protestant Reformation through the apostate Catholic Church saying, you may not preach that gospel in here. Well, what did they do? They went and preached it everywhere. It happened in the First Great Awakening as well, in the 1700s, that there were so many churches where there were pastors who were not converted, where the gospel was not welcome. And when the gospel began to be preached in those places, they said, not here, buddy. And you know what happened with George Whitfield? You know what happened with the Wesleys and others? They, they went out into the countryside. They, they went on things like missions to the Indians in Crosswicks, New Jersey. And they preached the gospel all over the place. And, and God brought people in. God brought people in. See, God has plans in all these kinds of things. And, and through this, it says that God brings salvation and God brings these riches. That's an interesting word there, isn't it? that their failure means riches for the Gentiles. What, what, what kind of riches is he talking about? Riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles? Well, this kind of gets back to the metaphor that Jesus used of this banquet that is laid out for all eternity for God's people. He told a couple of different parables about this idea of, of people being invited to the banquet, and then many of those who were invited saying no and then going and inviting other people, going out into the ditches and the sides of the highways and bringing in whoever could be brought in to this banquet because it's going to be filled. There, there was once when a Gentile soldier expressed this great faith in Jesus because he knew that Jesus could just say the word and heal someone. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. That's the kind of riches that it's talking about that have come to the Gentiles through the failure, through the trespass of Israel. To come in, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is talking about the riches of eternal life. This is not talking about some sort of a promise from God that if you have enough faith, then your bank account will grow. That's not it at all. It's the kind of riches that are expressed in the book of Ephesians, like in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or as he says in Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Or as he says in Ephesians 3.8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You hear what the riches is there? It's Christ. Christ is the riches. Or he says in Ephesians 3.16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's riches beyond your wildest dreams. And it's stored away in heaven for all who believe. And it's ours now as we are being filled with all the fullness of God. This was part of the plan of God in all of this, but I want you to hear also that part of the plan of God in Israel, for the most part, rejecting their Savior, Jesus, was also that someday he would save many, many of Israel. Here's what he says in verse 12. He says, if it means, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, in the way that it's actually written, the word full is not exactly right, and inclusion is not really there, but there's a footnote here that I think is a little better. If you're looking in the ESV, footnote one, it says, Greek says, their fullness. That's the way it's translated some other translations like the King James as well. That's what it's, it's saying. How much more will their fullness mean? What is that getting at? Well, for one thing, we can just say plainly that it doesn't mean that God is replacing Israel with other people. He's not. He says he's going to make Israel jealous through saving other people so that he can bring in their fullness, their fullness. Now, what does that mean? If, if this verse was all we had, it would be even harder to understand. We also have verses 25 through 32 that we'll come to in a couple of weeks, and i got to tell you that as we read those, it's still going to be hard to understand. But we at least have some more data that God has given us in the Scriptures about what he's talking about with the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Jews, as he speaks about in different places in this chapter. But let me just read you what it's going to say down in verse 25. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. And then down in verse 31, he says, So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, that's to you Gentiles, they, that's Israel, may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to mercy, uh, or excuse me, all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. So, with all that together, you it's perfectly clear now, right? Well, this is this is this is one of the most difficult things to figure out in all of scripture, okay? What exactly is it talking about here? Let me just tell you some views and then I'll tell you what I think seems to me to be the plain reading of this. One one view, which is one extreme really, is that God is saying that he's going to give eternal life to every individual Jewish person. Now, we know that that's not the case because of some other things that it says even within the book of Romans here. Uh, we know that that's not the case because of lots of other statements in Scripture. We know that even back in Romans 9 that it said that there are some who are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction as opposed to the elect chosen by grace, the elect remnant at this time. And also to say that, that this is saying that every Jewish person is going to be saved 
regardless of whether they turn to faith in Jesus Christ or not, that's going directly against the first four chapters, especially of the book of Romans, where it makes very, very explicit that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, not by faith in Christ or by being born into a Jewish family or into a Baptist family, by the way. It's by faith alone in Christ alone that we're saved. So we can just go ahead and step away from that view. There's also the dispensational view. The, that, that's the view that the Jewish people who are alive in the end times, beginning after the rapturing away of the church, are the ones who are being spoken of here, who are going to be brought in in their fullness. And this actually is the idea, that, that interpretation here is the idea that, uh, that raised this view that came into being in the 1800s that the rapture and the second coming were two different events, that, that the church meeting the, the Savior in the clouds was not receiving him to earth as he comes, but instead is that he, they're going to disappear and go away so that God can now get the Gentiles out of the way and now turn and deal with the Jews on earth. Now, that is not a, that, that, that's not a heretical view. I just got to say that, all right? That is not a heretical view. There are some fantastic gospel preachers out there who believe that. There are some fantastic church members sitting right in front of me who believe that. And I'll say it again. If the rapture happens that way, I will high-five you on the way up. I will be so happy. I, I just I, I don't think that that's what the Scripture teaches. But the, the view there would be that God would get the Gentiles out of the way so that he could then go back and save the Jews in another way. Now, one version of this that you really ought not to embrace is the idea that God would then, in that time, begin saving Jewish people not through the gospel or through a different gospel, not through the gospel of grace that we have now, but through the gospel of the kingdom that would involve animal sacrifices in Jerusalem again or something like that. You guys, don't fall for that. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. People at no point in history are going to be saved by any other way than faith alone in Christ alone. You need to know that even if you take that view of the end times. There's another extreme, though. Another extreme is that this, this passage in, in Romans 11 is not talking about ethnic Israel at all in any way, that, that it's only talking about the spiritual Israel that's spoken of at the beginning of chapter 9, that it's only talking about the elect from among Jews and Gentiles, that that would be those who are, are saved from, from the Gentiles and the remnant of the Jews as well. And so essentially that it wouldn't really be saying very much special or different here at all, and I just don't think that that's how the text of this chapter flows. There's also a view that this is talking about the small remnant of elect Israel from all time that adds up eventually to a large number. There's also the view that this is talking about, well, just over the entire course of history, that this means the majority of Jews of all time. There's also the view that this means large numbers of Jews at various times throughout church history, as there have been times of of revival and pockets of Jewish people here and there. And maybe that's what that's talking about. Or there's the view, I've already given you six views and this is the seventh, but I hope from that you can see that maybe this is not quite as straightforward as your first reading of it was if you thought, well, obviously this is what it is. Faithful people can, can really disagree about how exactly to interpret this. But here's what I think is being said here. 
that a majority of the Jewish people alive at a coming time in the future, probably close to the return of Christ, are going to turn to Christ in faith and be saved. I think that's what it's getting across here. I think that is the most straightforward reading of this part of Romans 11 as well as the rest of Romans 11, that there's a future time when the Jewish people will experience a great revival and turn back to God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, right now, at the time of the writing of Romans, and even right now, only a small remnant chosen by grace among the Jewish people who are believing in Christ But it seems that there's going to be this great revival and a reversal of those percentages to where the majority would be brought in. This is prophesied, by the way, in in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God said through the mouth of Zechariah, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they shall weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then he says in chapter 13, verse 1 of Zechariah, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This seems to be a prophecy that there would be a time after the crucifixion of Jesus when there will be a large number of the Jewish people who turn in repentance and in tears over the fact that Jesus was crucified and embrace him as their Savior. And I think that's the same thing that's being taught here in Romans chapter 11, clarifying the prophecy of Zechariah 10. But just remember this, in all of this, there's the sovereignty of God. There is the sovereignty of God. I want you to hear that. Because If we only come away from this part of Romans saying, boy, this is a hard part to wrap our minds around, and there sure are a lot of views, and now I need to go read 10 books so I can get this straight and figure out which view I hold. If that's your takeaway, well, I mean, you you may benefit from that a little bit, but you need to see what, what, what God is getting across through his word here in this passage, which is that God is sovereign in all of this. God has a good and gracious plan for all nations, Jews and Gentiles, in what he has done in sending Jesus Christ, in what he has done in Christ being rejected and crucified, in raising Christ from the dead, in the way that the gospel has spread across the world, even in the way that he has decreed from eternity past how all of this would go, who would embrace Christ, where, among what nations, at what times? I guarantee that when we see all of this work out, there's going to be things that are surprising to us that we say, oh yeah, that is what Romans 11 was saying, but I just didn't get it until I saw it. But what we can get and see right now is that you can absolutely trust God in how he is directing all of history, and therefore in how he is directing your life and your circumstances. You may say to yourself, well, why is it that I walked off course for so long? Well, why is it that Israel walked off course for so long? It's in order that they would have this full inclusion, and as we'll see later, as they would have this joy of life from the dead. Why why did my circumstances go this way? Why did God direct things this way? I, I hope that you can look here and see 
God has a purpose in all of this. I hope you can see here one example of what was said in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, even these things that are so hard to understand, he is working them for our good according to his purpose. I want you to see next, verse 13 and 14, Paul's tactics in Israel's evangelization. What do I mean by evangelization? I mean telling them the gospel, seeking to get people to believe the gospel. When we say evangelism, some people think of televangelism, and then when they think of televangelism, they think of fundraising through, through questionable means. That's not what we're talking about when we say evangelization. We're talking about telling the evangel, telling the good news, telling the gospel so that people can believe and be saved. And what is Paul's tactic there? He says it in verses 13 and 14. He says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus, hear this, and thus save some of them. That's his goal here. Even as he is playing up the beauty of God's grace now being poured out toward all nations so openly, so clearly, Jesus saying not just to the Jewish people, but to all nations now, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest, calling sinners in. He says, I play that up. I play up the role. I magnify my ministry as the one that God has called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was in Acts 9.15, by the way, where Jesus says that he's going to do that to make Paul an apostle to the Gentiles. But he says, I'm playing that up not just because I want to see Gentiles saved, but because it's on my heart that this is part of how God is going to bring in my fellow countrymen, says Paul, my brothers, my kinsmen in the flesh, as he's put it, in order to make them jealous and thus save them. You see, there's, there's not, uh, there, there is not this idea that, well, Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, and so he better not tell Jews about, about Christ. That's not his thought. It's not as though Paul says, well, my, my main mission is to bring the gospel to these people, and so therefore I'm going to forget about these people. No. no. No gospel preacher has or ought to have that mindset of, I'm just focusing on these people, and so therefore I don't need to worry about those other people. Just to give you an example, we, we have uh, Keith and Carmen McFall, our supported missionaries in France. Well, what are they focusing on? They're, they're focusing on this opportunity that God has given them and opened up doors so wide to reach university students at the University of Nantes in western France? It's fantastic. Does that therefore mean that they don't care about the salvation of the Muslim immigrant populations in Paris? Of course not. But they, they, they would, I, I, I could tell you right now that they would pray that however possible that if God would use their ministry to bring in those other kinds of peoples as well, they would be glad to see that. Or the Jabellos, who we prayed for this morning, as, as they're ministering in the interior of Papua New Guinea, in these villages that were completely unreached before they got there. Does that mean that they therefore don't care about the people on the coast who are easier to get to? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It's, it, 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 but what Paul says, yeah, I'm ministering to the Gentiles, but that doesn't mean that I don't care about my fellow Jews. 
In fact, in doing this, I am praying and hoping and trusting God that as they see the blessings that were promised to them throughout the Old Testament being given to others, that it would make them jealous and that that would be a means of God bringing them in to salvation, to the same salvation, to the same riches. As they see the banqueting table that was set up and offered to them, now being partaken of as people from all nations are coming in and feasting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their own forefathers, partaking of these blessings to make them jealous and say, I need those blessings and they are in Christ and to turn to Christ and to be saved. He's saying, look, all those other people are enjoying the blessings of the Messiah. All of those other people are enjoying the blessings of the promised kingdom. Don't you want in on this? That's what he's saying. He's saying here that he has particular tactics, too, in how he's reaching people. He's not changing the gospel. He's not preaching a different gospel to Gentiles and a different gospel to Jews or a different gospel to this city and a different gospel to that city, depending on their circumstances. It's the same gospel, but he does look around at the situation and prayerfully consider, what's my tactic in reaching these people? He says this in in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So what we can see here in these verses and in those verses is that it's okay to think, hey, maybe we should use a different tactic to reach this group of people that God puts in front of us here. Maybe if we're seeking to reach students on a college campus, the best tactic would be something like, let's invite a professor of Christian apologetics to come and give a lecture. But maybe that might not be the best tactic if we're saying, how do we reach the construction workers working on Main Street right in front of the church? Things can be a little different, but we're going to bring the same gospel regardless of where it is. But we get some information here, not just in evangelistic methods, but we, by the way, sign up for the evangelism course. It starts next week. It starts next week. There's a sign-up sheet over there, okay? But we also see here, here's what God's going to do to bring in the fullness of Israel. Here's what God is going to do to do this mysterious thing that we're going to see in verse 32, that he may have mercy on all that in this way all Israel will be saved. Here's how God's going to do it, according to these verses. Through regular gospel ministry. Through regular gospel ministry. Paul says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. He's saying, here's what God has given me to do, is to preach the gospel. And for those who don't accept it, to see the blessings coming to those who do, and for them to be saved. Here's here's what Charles Hodge says about this, great 1800s Princeton theologian. He says, Nothing is said of this restoration of Israel being sudden, or affected by a miracle, or consequent to the second advent, 
or as attended by a restoration of the Jews to their own land. These particulars have all been added by some commentators, either from their own imagination or from their views of other portions of the Scriptures. They are not taught by the apostle. On the contrary, it is through the mercy shown to the Gentiles, according to Paul, that the Jews are to be brought in, which implies that the Gentiles are to be instrumental in the restoration of the Jews. So guys, even as we look and we say, how's God going to do this? What are we going to do? As we are, have our heavy hearts for the lost people around us, including Jewish lost people, as is kind of the focus here in this chapter, what should we be looking for? Should we be saying, well, I, I just shouldn't do anything because I, in my eschatological scheme, God's going to just take care of that, so I don't have to worry about that. No, that wasn't Paul's idea. Paul's idea is, I am going to continue preaching the gospel, and as it is rejected by these people, I'm going to magnify it in these people as a means to see those people come to Christ. So we are called to keep on preaching the gospel. I, I will just say that there is a, you know, one of those views that was listed, maybe even two of those views that I listed about how to view Romans 11 has some very disturbing results in evangelism. The disturbing results sometimes that come in how people interpret Romans 11 is that when, when somebody who trusts in Christ and has that view, they come across any given person in their life, they're eager to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ unless they find out that that person is Jewish. And then you know what they do? They say, oh, in this way all Israel will be saved. I'm off the hook here. I'm just going to talk to this person about geopolitics, what's going on in the Holy Land. What a sad thing. Don't do that. People need the gospel. All people need the gospel. And that's how God is going to save the fullness of the Jews, is through the same gospel that's going to save the fullness of the Gentiles. Keep preaching the gospel. Now, is it, is it anti-Semitic to say that Jewish people need to embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's a large number of people out there who will say that teaching in itself is anti-Semitism. And there's just nothing I can do about that opinion. But we're not asking anybody to become less Jewish. We're asking them to become more Jewish. We're asking them to embrace the actual Messiah promised in their own scriptures and to have the actual riches of eternal life promised in their own scriptures that come through faith alone in Christ alone. And we see here in these verses, finally, the, the hope and the joy of Israel's revival. In verse 15, for it says, For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, we already talked about how that is, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Life from the dead. Wow. Wow. How beautiful is it when you see somebody come to faith in Christ? And how beautiful is it when you see somebody who seemed incredibly unlikely come to faith in Christ? Or you see somebody who has been running hard in their sin and their rejection of the gospel for years and years come to faith in Christ? I remember at the church that I was a member of in college in Nashville, 
there was a, an elderly lady there who was just one of the most faithful believers I have ever met. Her husband had not become a believer when she became a believer, and she had been praying for his salvation for 50 years. And you know what happened? He believed after 50 years. And you, can, you, can you just imagine the joy that's involved in that? And that's what is being gotten across here, not just about individuals, but about the nation of Israel, the, the ethnic nation of Israel, the Jewish people. How much more will it be when they come in? How much more will their acceptance mean? This, this beautiful revival that's being predicted here, it, it's saying that's going to mean even more riches of salvation for the Gentiles, too. And what incredible joy it's going to see. It's going to be to see them have life from the dead, to, to come to faith in Jesus, and not just life from the dead within these individuals as they turn to faith in Christ, which that certainly is life from the dead, very literally, but also just the incredible joy that life-giving joy that's going to come through seeing so many turn to faith in Jesus. Guys, if, if a whole nation, if a whole ethnic people could, for the most part, reject God after he had been working with them for thousands of years, after he had, he had been telling them in the Scriptures exactly what he was going to do, after he came to them face to face, if they could reject him, and then for thousands of years after that, continue for the most part to reject him, and then we could see here a promise that there's going to be revival, that God was going to turn to them and be gracious to them once again. If that's the kind of God we have who can show grace and mercy after so much time of running from him, then what's to stop you from receiving the grace of Jesus Christ and forgiveness of your sins by faith in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the mercy that's been shown to us. Thank you for the mercy that is being shown to people of all nations around the world as they turn to faith in Jesus. Thank you for the mercy that is being shown to the elect remnant of Israel right now. Thank you for the mercy that you seem to have said you're going to show in greater and greater numbers in the future toward the people of Israel. Lord, we long for that. We pray for that even as we pray your kingdom come. We pray that you would bring in the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Jews. God, thank you for granting us to be one people in the one person of Jesus Christ as we trust in him. But God, I just especially pray that as we see here such promises of grace and mercy, I pray that anyone who needs to receive that grace and mercy will come to Jesus right now and receive it, and that those of us who have received it would be built up and encouraged, even at the encouragement that's promised in the future here, this life from the dead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.